liberty lockdown please scan your barcode your liberty ain't gone but yeah it's on hold where did it come from and where did it go it requires a fight not tweeting from your phone don't need a king get him off the fucking throne if you're riding with the thought you've always got a home the virus is scared of will come and it'll go the government knows this don't get treated like a hoe Oh boy, I get you two episodes in the same day. You know I got some bangers in store for you. Uh, Dr. Ladapo, Ladapo. I, I, I said his name wrong this morning and I can't get it right. No matter how many times I read it, no matter how many times I hear it pronounced properly, I get it wrong every time. I got this one right though, I think. Alex Gladstein. This guy is absolutely brilliant. Uh, I was turned on by Guy Swan to his piece. It was, I think it was November 30th. Absolutely phenomenal. It's called Structural Adjustment, How the IMF and World Bank Repress Poor Countries and Funnel Their Resources to Rich Ones. I couldn't believe it when I, I didn't actually read it. I, I listened to it on uh, Bitcoin Audible, which I would recommend to you guys, of course. Um, but his work speaks for itself. The The depth of research was uh, jaw-dropping. And for me, as an Austrian economics guy, to have the level of insight and the backstory and the understanding kind of the highest level of how this whole game gets played was revelatory. So I think you guys are going to love this. Alex is the chief strategy officer over at the Human Rights Foundation and also writes essays over at Bitcoin Magazine. And he's the author of Check Your Financial Privilege. You can go to cyfp.org to pick that up. Without further ado, Alex, thank you for joining me, sir. Hey, Clint. Thanks for having me. Oh, man. That I'm I'm not exaggerating. That piece blew my mind. I was like, I I've for years I've I've known about it to you know on a peripheral uh, peripheral like uh, nebulous type of way, but ooh, it's ugly. So first, let's start there. What what inspired you to write the piece? Had you been studying this for a while? Yeah. Um, <clears throat> again, thanks for the time. Thanks for the platform. Uh, writing about the IMF and World Bank and sort of spelunking into the depths <laughs> and the darkness of what they do uh, was a, um, it was sort of a grim task. I'm not going to lie. It was uh, depressing. Uh, it made me question a lot about how I thought I understood the world. It educated me enormously. Uh, and I'm, yeah, was happy to share that with, with so many other people and, and happy to see people asking big questions now. Um, and um I started uh, thinking a little harder about the IMF and World Bank this summer. I uh, am a Bitcoiner. I think Bitcoiners um, always have questions about uh, large uh, alphabet soup organizations and their uh, <laughs> their their motivations and uh, and their outcomes and what they do. Um, I think that most people who uh, are, are into Bitcoin have this sort of vague sense that the IMF and World Bank are up to no good, um, or at least especially the IMF. I, I know a lot of people on the left uh, historically have been critical uh, of the IMF and World Bank, uh, and, and again, for good reason. Um, and and I, I know that uh, beyond that, there wasn't a whole lot of kind of up-to-date or cohesive analysis that that tried to link uh, the criticisms of the bank and the fund from several decades ago and kind of bring it up to speed to now. Um, that's what made me want to write something because what happened is I started to dig into some of uh, some some analysis on the on the IMF and World Bank 
and I realized there wasn't a whole lot of like kind of newer uh, looks at at the topic. There was, you know, a lot written in the 70s and 80s and 90s, and it's kind of been a little quiet since then. Um, and I think the bank and the fund have kind of faded into like public consciousness. Like they're just things that we just think are there and, you know, are kind of reminds me of the federal reserve in a way. Yeah. I mean, they just become like, uh, people, people just, uh, they become just part of the furniture in the room. Like they're just there. Right. Um, and I think post, like there were some really big protests against the IMF and world bank in the nineties. Um, but since then it's been like, I guess we've had bigger fish to fry or whatever. Right. (laughs) So, I mean, you had the Iraq war and you had other things. So, um, I, I kind of get it, but I really felt like once I dug in and read the source material and interviewed people, I spent several months doing that. I really felt like if, if all the piece could do, which, which, which is an article right now in Bitcoin magazine, as, as you said, called structural adjustment, it will also be a, coming out as a book uh, in Q2 called hidden repression. Um, if, if all I could do is just help people understand what has transpired, then I'd be happy because then people, you know, knowledge is, a form of power, right? Just understanding it is, is the first step Indeed. as far as like, what do you do from now from here? And we'll get into it. Like, I don't have an answer. I mean, the unfortunate thing is like the people who perpetrated the scheme, most of them, maybe virtually all of them will never go to prison or face any sanction for what they did. There'll be no accountability. All these people died in the past. They'll never have any justice. It just is sort of what it is. But I mean, maybe we can think about this as we build a better world in the future. I mean, that's of really all I, all I can say. Yeah, um, I mean, it, no matter how egregious the the actions of the past, hopefully we can learn from them and move forward. Uh, it, it kind of reminds me a little bit of the vaccine mandates and some of the you know lockdown consequences and things like that that people are dealing with. That many people feel as if there will be no justice, and I'm like, mm-hmm. look, it, it, as long as we believe there will be no justice, I can assure you, you're right. <laughs> you know, like like it's going to come down to popular will as to whether or not we we either seek justice or at least seek a, a remedy so that this doesn't continue to happen moving forward. What what was stark to me is that, you know, you said that there has been some people on the left that have made this kind of one of their calling cards for a while. Mm-hmm. I haven't seen it. And maybe it's just because I don't run in, in leftist circles very often, but I don't, I mean, certainly not mainstream coverage. Of, you know, well, the, left. I mean, the most popular pop culture work on the topic was, uh, John Perkins' Confessions of an Economic Hitman, which oh, uh, yeah, 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 I know well, that he's one. he's a lefty. Oh, I, I didn't mean, even know that. All totally, right. yeah. I mean, he's totally, and and I'm not saying that in a in a disparaging way. I'm just you know sure characterizing him as such. I mean, no, I mean, and and the the Seattle protests in '99 and um, Naomi Klein and the Shock Doctrine, and um, I mean, you go back to Karl Marx. You know, Karl Marx himself had had criticisms of of imperialism. I mean, I think that in general, like the left. Uh, historically has obviously was very critical of colonialism back in the day. And then uh, in recent years, in recent decades, it is, has been very critical of what they consider neo-colonialism. And, you know, Mm. the thing is a lot of that is correct. Um, You know, and what I've discovered in my journeys here is that uh, some of these Marxists and socialists uh, actually had very good uh, insight Mm-hmm. The problem is they just didn't, their answers were really terrible. Uh, their solutions were really bad, but, they, mm-hmm. but their criti- their criticism of the, of the dollar, dollar hegemony and of the way the world worked, actually, we can learn a lot from it, I guess, is, is what I want to say. And then, you know, totally when, when, when you have a situation where both libertarians 
and Marxists agree that something's bad, then you really know it's bad. I guess this, I guess is the, uh, that's a, the, that's a the, great way to put it. Cause you know, Friedman was like, um, you know, we should dispense with these organizations. A lot of Austrians were questioning their existence. Um, mm -hmm. I know people have on the Austrian side been very critical of the way that gold was usurped as the international monetary standard by the dollar and the SDR and these things. And, you know, I, th I think there's always been proper condemnation and skepticism among the Austrians and, and some libertarians and, and also on, on the Marxist side of things. But like, you know, the problem is the centrist establishment right. mainstream have basically not been that critical of these institutions and have even been have even on, you know, I think a lot of people, maybe they don't know about the IMF, but I, I think a lot of people think the World Bank is like a good thing. Like, oh, so yeah. that's, absolutely, you know, we're just talking about the average person, you know, who's on Wall Street or uh, who works in DC, who's a diplomat, like, I, 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 or who works in economic development, right. in one, one of these NGOs, I think in general, they're like, well, maybe they do some bad things, but their heart's in the right place. I mean, I feel like that's probably the most uh, popular perception. And I just, I really wanted to shatter that because that's, that's not true. Um, I couldn't the, agree more. The, the, the overwhelming lesson I learned from doing this work, that the, the only possible thesis I think you can draw once you have the full spectrum of understanding of sources of perspectives is that like the outcome of the World Bank and IMF uh, has been to impoverish and to create dependency. Um, and it has not been to end poverty and it has not been to help lift up nations. Um, it's been quite the opposite. Um, and I don't know if there was like some meeting um, in uh, uh, the 40s or 50s uh, where U.S. and European policymakers sat around in, in a room and basically said, we're going to steal all these resources from these poor countries. Um, sure. We're going to, we're going to do what colonialism used to do for us. Uh, but, but we're going to use debt instead of the, the, the gun. I, I don't know if that actually happened, right? but the reality is it doesn't really matter. Uh, mm -hmm. it, it, it was either, a, it was either a orchestrated conspiracy or it was a structural outcome. And the reality is, doesn't really matter whether it was one or the other. Exactly. Um, it has happened and it has transpired and the effects have been, unbelievably powerful on the world um so you know again i'll let you guide in terms of where we begin but the scope of the work was looking at the legacy of what we call these bretton woods institutions bretton woods institutions because they were created in 44 at the bretton woods conference uh, mm -hmm. towards the end of world war ii uh, as part of the dollar system that would rule the world um they are in general um they were meant to be a development bank in the world bank, meaning this would fund infrastructure projects that private capital, you know, wouldn't, wouldn't have the appetite for. Uh, and then the IMF was meant to be the lender of last resort for the financial system of the world. And, you know, they had, let's say, you know, those were, those were good. You could on paper, those were good intentions. Right. Um, um, but it, my thesis is that they were sort of co-opted and have been doing something quite different uh, really ever since uh, the late fifties, early sixties. Um, and that these institutions remain very powerful today. They're bigger than ever. Uh, and, and as we enter a decade that could resemble the 1980s quite a bit in terms of uh, crises in the third world or what we now call the global south, um, in the 80s, uh, partly as a result of Paul Volcker raising the interest rates in the United States to close to 20 percent, um, that just completely destroyed uh, the third world in many ways. Um, of course, they had all this dollar denominated debt that got very expensive. They, they aren't able to, you know, 
print their own fiat currency to pay back that debt. Right. Um, so it really ended up crushing their economies. Uh, you're starting to see that now too. So, so just as Paul Volcker's uh, predecessor, you know, successors are raising the cost of capital in the U.S., and we could sit here and argue: is it worse to go from whatever eight to ten percent to to eighteen to twenty, or is it worse to go from 0.3 to five? I mean, b- both are very severe when it comes to someone who's sitting there holding us denominated debt. Um, yeah. And they're not done yet necessarily. And they may not be done yet. And, and the point is that these decisions are made entirely selfish, selfishly, uh, by us policymakers trying to, you know, and whether or not, obviously your audience thinks, you know, they're going to be successful or whether what, their agenda almost doesn't matter. The point is that they're trying to fix an American problem uh, that the government doesn't want, meaning uh, consumer price inflation. Um, they're they're thinking that by like, you know, choking up the economy and and pushing pushing it, us into a recession, they'll, they'll reduce inflation. I mean, that's like kind of what they're trying to do here. Uh, they're um, covering up for or. Um, trying to to counter the problem that was created by enormous stimulus uh, in the in the wake of the lockdowns, um, where where they obviously just like went too far uh, with printing money, um, and now they're like having to like overcompensate, right. um, and they're not thinking about the wider world. I mean, Americans are only four percent of the world population, so you know I think it's crazy that I was recently in Africa and in India. I was traveling and, and talking to people on these topics. Like, it's pretty nuts that like in twenty twenty three a small unelected group of people who are who led by a former private equity guy and and otherwise comprised of private bankers um you know essentially you know octogenarian you know group of unelected you know old white men uh, for the most part um get to decide the the cost of capital for the entire planet is is really crazy um it's like this primitive thing that i think in 100 years we're going to look back at and see is extremely primitive and and medieval and backwards i could Um, not agree more and and that's why i had the persistence to actually do this thing see it out i was excited to publish it um even though it's so dark and grim because i think there's like light at the end of the tunnel so as a bitcoiner um I think I have a little more hope than I think what what gold bugs might. I think gold bugs are pretty defeated. I mean, it is what it is. I mean, may, maybe, you know, gold has some sort of resurgence here in the coming decade. But like, you know, you can't email gold. We're not going back to the gold standard. Like it, it was defeated by the U.S. government and its allies. Like it is what it is. You can read the book, The Gold, uh, The Gold Wars for for some good mm-hmm. background on that. Um, but, you know, I don't I don't think there's a world where that 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 we return to that. So we're in the fiat standard. And um you know, uh, this post 71 political economy is a monster and, and we're, we're dealing with it. And it's most monstrous effects happen far away from uh, the, the wealthy parts of the world um, that we might call, call the core economies. Like it's it's most grievous, uh, you know, um, sufferings happen in, in the periphery or what we call the global south, where. You know, we have this term like the people use this term, the golden billion to describe the U.S., the EU, Japan and, and a handful of other countries that are kind of in the orbit of these these nations. And that's like the golden billion. Right. And then and then you have everybody else. You basically have, you know, almost seven billion other people um, who live outside the golden billion who, uh, you know, feel the results of what we decide to do. Mm-hmm. And I think doing this research on what the IMF and World Bank have done. 
have shown me that, you know, the world has very much been constructed, you know, by the golden billion for the golden billion and not just for the golden billion, but for the 1% of these, of the people in these countries. Um, I did a bunch of writing that made it into my book uh, on the dollar system and how it came to be. And, you know, the U.S. created a debt empire uh, that that is really, really good for like the top couple percentage of Americans and not great for most Americans. Like this whole debt no. empire thing um, has made the dollar, um, the way it was constructed, you know, made the dollar kind of overvalued and really hurt our ability to have manufacturing at home and, and have export driven society. So, you know, if you're a blue collar worker, it's not it, your, your wages have essentially been stagnant for decades. Yeah. Um, or or so, down sometimes or down or down. Yeah. And, and you know what, if you've been in real estate or on finance or insurance or defense or software, you've made a freaking killing. You've done you've yep. been, ever since the early eighties, since interest rates have been going down, you've been, you've been doing great. So bingo. I was um, a real estate, I was a mortgage broker and a real estate investor. So I, I crushed it. I retired in my thirties. I, I was one of those guys that benefited from, from it. But at the same time, I, I can understand the mechanisms by which I benefited and, and for the record, I understood why I was benefiting the entire time because I, I have an Austrian economics background. I was like, this is, this is like found money. I mean, this the, is just, <laughs> there's a really, really good book. Um, that would be interesting for your audience, actually, again, written by someone who's on the left. Uh, it's called the Lords of easy money. And it's mm -hmm. a really, really awesome, um, uh, critical history of the post Greenspan U S monetary policy mm -hmm. of, of e essentially easy money. Yeah. Um, and it, it, it just, it gives you great insight into the social impact the human impact that this policy's had on Americans. Well, it's catastrophic. Um, you talk about the, 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 the drug dependencies that have developed in these communities, the, the unemployment, the stagnant wages, all these things. But this is like a, this is a, uh, a microcosm of a wider thing that's happened in the world. So, well, that's, um, that's yeah. what your piece was so um, enlightening. Uh, you know, I, I understand it on a very intimate level, in America because mm -hmm. of the federal federal reserve and because of my sure. career and because of my political leanings and everything else. But I didn't understand fully the mechanisms by which it's been rolled out globally. As I was reading your piece, this term just kept bouncing around in my mind. I don't know if anyone's ever used it before, but like it was like technocratic uh, colonialism or technocratic imperialism. Like that's kind yeah. of the vibe that I was getting. And, and what, what else struck me as a libertarian who opposes our CIA, you know, led color revolutions and coups that we've, uh, mm -hmm. you know, overthrown many of the global South nations that you're talking sure. about, you know, it's like, it's like, we're hitting them from both sides. You know, you got like, okay, so you, you democratically elect someone who uh, maybe won't go along with IMF or world bank stuff. Well, here comes right. our CIA. And I, and, and I feel <laughs> yeah. like that, that is probably the next chapter of your book. If you were to write one <laughs> where it's like, okay, well now we can connect these dots because also with the, uh, you know, the, petro for dollars system mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. a lot of people think that's why you know Gaddafi and saddam hussein and others fell and yeah. perhaps perhaps that's why uh putin is being targeted right now so anyways i i'm getting a little sidetracked here but i just wanted to see if if you think that there's some chance that the cia uh constant intervention plays into this well i i, I and i did another piece called uncovering the costs of the petrodollar system uh, oh, okay. which, oh actually which, no that was a couple years ago right yeah it was a couple years ago. yeah i, I listened to that one as well yeah, so I talk about again the cost of the petrodollar system and what the U.S. government has done to maintain it, um, and I think that uh, I, I think these things are connected. I think U.S. foreign policy, uh, where it can, it would prefer uh, to use the IMF and World Bank 
to try and use debt as as a weapon to control. And sure. only when only when that fails do they then like move in with whether it be targeted assassinations or, or invasions. Um, well, I there think you that, have it. <laughs> well, because well, and it's not for moral reasons; it's just for cost reasons. Like it's no, really yeah. freaking expensive to invade a country. So, well, the, the IMF um, and World Bank play is like a pure profit for them, whereas you mm -hmm. have to expend you know blood and treasure to go the militaristic right. route. So it makes perfect sense. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And I, you know, you don't have to. I, I don't consider myself a conspiracy theorist or whatever. But like, um, uh, like just just to orient. For example, I think that 9-11 was committed by uh, by bin Laden and a bunch of Saudis, not, not, sure, not sure. an inside job. But like uh, I, I try to place these things in the in the geopolitical order. And I, I think um, that with the IMF and World Bank, the crazy part is the reality is way crazier than any conspiracy theory. Like, yeah. it's, it's actually really, really nuts. So I guess well, we could we you know, go ahead. Go ahead. No, I was just going to say that's how I feel about the Federal Reserve. You know, like like we're constantly talking about conspiracies and there's stuff that you can prove or you can't prove. And it's like, sure. well, you have one where, where they have like, they have private meetings and they decide the most important factor for the entire yeah. economy, which is the price of money and then the quantity of money. And and we're like, oh yeah, that's a, I mean, that's a conspiracy. It is, but it's, well, it's like, we sit here, like <laughs> we wait for the new Pope. Like we wait for the smoke for the FOMC <laughs> meetings. Um, yes. Yes. But, um, I mean, look at, look at the, look at how the markets move based off those minutes. It's insane that we have, that anyone even pretends that you have a free market if you're waiting for a bunch of men well, in a in a closed off room to come out and give you the the, the, the minutes of their talk. The, the the Fed is very connected to to what we're going to talk about because um, yep. you know, and this was part of the reason I started to dig into this was uh, you you know maybe your audience is familiar with the cancel on effect, which is something that Bitcoiners have been talking a lot about. Um, which is the fact that when you have newly printed money, it benefits uh, people close to the spigot. Uh, and then, you know, by the time it, it, it trickles down to the average person, uh, the effects have actually been harmful uh, for right. them or, or, or they get a much uh, worse deal. Uh, and that is something that's been studied, like, let's say in the United States, where it's obvious that like, you know, Wall Street gets bailed out first when there's stimulus, then with whatever's left over, the average person gets bailed out, et cetera. Yep. Um, but there's a, there's a, there's, and, you know, banks can get cheaper uh, capital than the average homeowner like like we understand the cantillon effect like let's say on a domestic level what my piece was exploring was the global cantillon effect so yes you also have the u.s government and its proxies which can access u.s like until we have in my opinion the bitcoin standard maybe in the future we live under the dollar standard and that's just the fact and the fact is today dollars are the money of the world like whether it be treasuries or dollars themselves like right. and other monies don't really they're less money like like if you are sri lanka and you're printing some fiat currency like who cares like you can't use that money to buy stuff on the international markets it's it's not valid it's not convertible so if you're in ghana you can't use the ghanaian cd to buy tractors for your agriculture you have sure. to like export stuff to earn dollars or euros which then you can use to buy things so that's like the way of the world and you know outside of the golden billion that's how countries have to do business they have to right. export something that we want and then we pay them in real money and then they get some they have no way to make real money we can make real money anytime we want so what this results in is this grotesque kind of inequality where like essentially uh you know the World Bank and IMF, which which are uh, creatures of their creditors, I mean they're 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 basically institutions controlled by who who set up, set them up and deposited the funds into them and who maintains them, and you know they can borrow from these American and European markets at 
whatever, let's say 5%. And then they can loan capital out at whatever, eight, 9% to, to these poor countries. Mm-hmm. And, and this is just like one way they would, they sustain themselves over, over time. I'm um, sure many in my audience are wondering where they get that capital. Could you uh, clarify that for them? Yeah, sure. So I guess to start at the beginning, um, you know, the 1930s were unequivocally, you know, a difficult time for global trade, let's say at least. And I think that global trade is is the lens through which to view all of this, uh, what we're going to talk about uh, through. Um, and the powers that be did not want another 1930s. They did not want another decade of like competitive devaluations and tariffs and trade barriers and autarky. They didn't want that. They wanted openness. They wanted all countries to trade with each other. And of course, this would benefit the U.S. the most. But this is this is like what they wanted, right? They wanted U.S. markets to be able to reach everywhere, right? Um, so, you know, the Bretton Woods dollar empire was designed with this in mind. And two of the most important institutions that were created in Bretton Woods were the IMF and the, and the World Bank. Um, so again, the World Bank was originally designed to be uh, a development bank, meaning it would go in into countries and fund infrastructure, whether that be electricity or dams or agriculture, et cetera, um, uh, where private capital might not have the appetite. And then right. uh, the IMF was meant to be the lender of last resort for the financial system, meaning if a country had a balance of payments crisis, it could borrow from uh, the IMF to bail itself out. Uh, and then, you know, the hope would be that a few years later, it'd be able to pay the loan back and it'd be fine. Um, so sort of, uh, sort of, sort of like the way that uh, you know, central central banks in the West have been sort of nationalizing and bailing out different industries in, in modern finance financial yep. history. Um, so, you know, you could argue that that those were reasonable aspirations, and and that like the 1930s were unequivocally bad, you know, um, for different reasons. Sure. So, you know, in the late 40s and early and 50s, like that's kind of what they did. They they focused on the Europe and Japan rebuilding the countries that had been destroyed by World War II, um, and 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 that's uh, more or less the early history uh, of of the IMF and World Bank. That that they, they uh, were set up. You had to join the IMF first, and back then, before the seventies, you deposited a percentage of your 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 let's say national deposit to to join the IMF. There were like dues basically, mm-hmm. and you had to deposit a, a quarter of it in gold, uh, and then the rest was deposited in like a mix of dollars and other fiat currencies. Um, so all these countries around the world would come to the IMF uh, when it was created in the late forties, early fifties, and they would deposit some gold and then some fiat, and then they'd be part of the IMF. And that gave them two things. It gave them the ability, if they had a crisis later to draw into the IMF's pool of capital for a loan. Um, and that loan would be more or less expensive based on like how much they were drawing. So if it was a small loan, it wouldn't be that pricey, but if it was like a really big loan, it would be more expensive. And again, this might be like a reasonable construct. Um, and then if you were a member of the IMF, it gave you an ability to then you, to, to get access to the World Bank, you have to be a member of the IMF. So it, the whole point was to get all these countries in the world to join the IMF so that like if they wanted a dam and didn't have the money, well, maybe they could maybe their gov- maybe your government could put up 20 percent. You'd go to the World Bank and say, hey, we want to build this hydro dam. Can you guys find the other 80 percent? And the World Bank would often act like a deal maker, like maybe the World Bank would put up 40 percent and they'd find the other 40 percent from private capital or whatever. So a lot of these World Bank projects were like multilateral like uh, schemes. And the IMF was more like a bailout machine. Like that's Mm -hmm. literally what it does is it bails out a country with a certain amount of money to get it past a crisis. Um, Now, the like, but generally speaking, like who funds them? historically it was sort of the g5 was what was the leading 
let's say, uh, financial power behind the IMF and World Bank. So that would be the US, the UK, Germany, Japan, and France. Right. So the G5 uh, more or less uh, you know, set up these institutions, they controlled them. Um, and even today, if you look at the voting power, which I know, I know you, you listened to my article, so you heard this crazy part, um, you know, the voting power was rigged up back in the forties, like, and, it, but it's remained like largely unchanged so that the U S even though it's like much smaller of an economic, uh, economic power than it used to be, um, relatively speaking, uh, it still has total veto power. So like to, to change rules at these institutions, you need, uh, 85% of the vote, but conveniently the U S has like 16%. So like mm-hmm. the U S can veto any major change. Um, sure. and then on individual loan decisions, you need 50%. Okay. Uh, and basically the U.S. and its allies control more than that. So like, the, you know, the U.S. still controls these institutions. I mean, they're based in Washington. The institutions share um, real estate. They're connected by tunnels and bridges. Like it's it's very obvious that they're sister organizations wow. that, that work together. Is, the, is there um, a formal connection to the to the government? I, I mean, they are uh, they're supposed to be independent from the U.S. government. Um, so it's just like the federal and, reserve <laughs> it know, is, but it isn't I, the people who set them up, wanted them to actually be in New York so that they would be separate from DC, but that ended up didn't working out. And I think the fact that they're in DC shows you like who's in charge here. Uh, mm-hmm. but nominally the, the, the IMF has always been headed by a European and the world bank by an American. That's been like the rules. Hmm, so that's okay. why you've seen people like Robert McNamara or Paul Wolfowitz be head of bank. And then someone like Christine Lagarde or, um, you know, uh, any number of Europeans. Paul Wolfowitz was the head. Yeah. Um, I was going to mention that later. I mean, what, what ends up happening is that you start to see that these things are part of us foreign policy and part of the defense industry, actually. That's because, incredible. I mean, Robert McNamara was, you know, secretary of defense. He sent many, many Americans, including my, my dad to Vietnam uh, right. in the sixties. And then he later became president of the world bank for a decade. And then he was probably the most important leader of either institution ever in terms of the way that he, he expanded the lending power of them. Um, and then Wolfowitz later, who was the, one of the architects of the Iraq war, he, he, he also, be, after that, he became head of the World Bank. So, um, you know, the, the connection between um, the people who actually dropped the real bombs and the people who dropped the debt bombs is a lot closer than, than, uh, than, than you think. Yeah. Um, but anyway, so, so these institutions were set up, um, uh, again, um, some, so, somewhat of like, let's say, a, um, a, a, sorry, can I just... Uh, just get my dog to yeah i'll, I'll do i'll do just, my just, break right now yeah sir you know when you're recording live sometimes weird things happen and you know when life is going live well some weird things happen open enrollment ends on january 15th that means that it's almost over and that means that now is the time to take charge of your healthcare decisions we all know that the system isn't working just like the central banks and the imf and the federal reserve and the world bank none of it's working I'm sorry, but there is one thing that is working. Thanks to CrowdHealth, we can do something about it. CrowdHealth puts your healthcare back in your hands. It cuts out the middlemen, saves you money, and funds your healthcare costs without relying on big government or big insurance companies. But do not wait until it's too late. Open enrollment ends January 15th. Let's be honest. This is all broken. It is. I'm just being straight with you. But CrowdHealth has a better way to fund your healthcare costs. You pay one low monthly total to fund your account. Your monthly subscription helps fund healthcare costs for the entire CrowdHealth community. And unlike insurance, there are no doctor networks, so you can see any doctor you want. How does CrowdHealth beat insurance, you're asking yourself, I'm sure. Simple. 
by totally reversing the vicious incentives that got us into this mess in the first place. A la Bitcoin. <laughs> cough, cough. CrowdHealth provides true peace of mind, something insurance companies don't seem to care about. And unlike insurance companies, CrowdHealth helps you find great care at a fair price. Always pay doctors as quickly as possible and actively negotiates to keep costs down for everyone. Sounds awesome, right? Well, you can take charge of your healthcare today with CrowdHealth. Open enrollment is the only time you can hit the eject button on the broken system without penalty, so do not wait and for a limited time. Join for just $99 per month for your first six months when you use promo code LOCKDOWN at joincrowdhealth.com. Open enrollment ends January 15th. That means six days from now. How much are you paying for insurance right now? Do not wait. So sign up today before it's too late. That's joincrowdhealth.com. Promo code LOCKDOWN. CrowdHealth is not healthcare insurance. It's a totally different way of paying for healthcare. Terms and conditions may apply. And we are back with Alex. Thank you for joining us again. Hope your dog is okay. <laughs> yeah, uh, someone came to the door. I know, and, I know. Uh, of course, the dog is uh, doing doing what it needs to do, be a guard dog. Uh, yeah, that's uh, right. Barking. Just, just so, as we're being guard, guard dogs for the global south right now. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, and that's 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 a good transition point. So again, so these institutions were set up uh, with you know on paper reasonable aims to help keep the world financial system moving along when it encountered a crisis. Um, but the backstory and hopefully the somewhat original insight that I have to bear here is that I think we don't think about the transition away from colonialism enough in our e economic analysis of the world and. If you think about it, you had these like core economies, like whether it be the British Empire, the, the any of the European empires, right? The, the New American Empire, as it, you know, um, you know, against what John Quincy Adams had hoped, you know, really became an empire in the early 20th century. Uh, Japan, uh, any any major northern empire, um, they had hundreds of years of uh, benefit from like looting poor countries. Um, yep whether it be resource extraction, slaving, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Like that is an enormous subsidy to their culture and to their nation and to their society. So basically like what imperialism did for hundreds of years was help keep inflation down in core countries in the, in the capitals of empire, like London and Paris, Berlin, et cetera. Um, by adding cheap inputs from the peripheral part of the world. So mm -hmm. like they would add really cheap goods and labor from the, from the other parts of the world. And that would help keep quality of life high uh, and keep costs down in, in, in the empire. So that was kind of the way it worked. And mm -hmm. between 1920 and 1960, you really saw kind of an end to empire in, in, in a formal way. Like you saw decolonialization, you saw Europe and the United States and, and others have to, in Japan have to give up their colonial claims more or less. I mean, some of it still persists today, but generally speaking, 1960 is thought of as like the end of, of colonialism. Right. Mm -hmm. um, so you had them lose control over more than half the world. Um, and I think we don't, consider that enough when we think about big things like why did we have the great depression you know what why did certain empires fail you know a lot of it was just because a huge conveyor belt of like near free resources that had been looted for centuries came to an end like grounded to a halt um and i think that in the wake of world war ii a lot of the empires like started to feel this and started to think about well how do we replace that drain? it was called the drain the drain the colonial drain and, you know, whether or not they sat around in a room and thought about this or not, it doesn't matter. The reality is that the IMF and World Bank 
helped replace the drain. So yes. what the IMF and World Bank did post-1960 uh, was focus on the developing countries, focus on the third world, the global south. And they implemented policies that basically sculpted these societies to export cheaply uh, the things that we needed and made them dependent on us. So like we would get the stuff we wanted um, and they would buy stuff from us, uh, you know, at, at a higher than kind of normal price. And, yep. and this whole construct was not a free market system. I mean, I understand when people say, well, America was the capitalist power and Soviet Union was the communist power. I mean, in a way, of course, obviously, America is capitalist and, and you know, Soviet Union was communist. Like, I'm not going to deny that, on, uh, you know, at a, at a 30,000 foot level. But what's interesting is that all of the capitalist, quote unquote, powers used highly centrally planned Way, you know, mechanisms to control to, to protect their economies uh, right. after World War II. So, you know, for example, subsidies for agriculture, tr tariffs on trade, like these things persist today, right? So, yep. you don't have a free free trade world; it doesn't exist. Um, everything's control. Everything's <laughs> controlled, and we could do yeah. a whole nother show on um, the WTO and the GATT and stuff like that. But, like, the point is that the world that was created was one where. Uh, powers like Europe and America wanted to be food and energy secure. I mean, that, that, that is now kind of obvious, like post uh, the Russian invasion of Ukraine, like everybody's now thinking about food sovereignty and energy sovereignty in a way that they weren't thinking about three years ago. Uh, they just weren't. Um, we're now realizing how important those things are. Right. And like, they've always been, that's always been it. It's been food and energy sovereignty. Yep. Um, and that's what these institutions were set up to create was to set up a world where, uh, the West could access plentiful food and energy um, and that other countries had to get their food and energy sort of through us or, or from us yeah. um, on the agriculture side. I mean, the world bank was, was largely set up to create quote unquote, modern ag agriculture in a lot of these poor countries, which, which would move them away from producing consumption agriculture for their own countries. So like, mm -hmm. for example, you might have, Bangladesh is the example, one of the examples I use in the piece where maybe they were doing cattle and rice and they were, you know, farmers were growing food to feed themselves. They were very poor. Don't get me wrong. They were dirt poor. Um, problem is they're still dirt poor today and yet they can't grow their own food. They have to go to the market to buy it from us. Yeah. So you have situations like the whole African continent is 85% dependent on food imports. Like that's lunacy that that continent in a real free market, that continent would be a breadbasket for the world and they would be they would be, you know, providing agriculture for Northern Europe, but in reality, it's the opposite. So, right. which is know, totally counterintuitive if you don't yeah. understand these mechanisms. Yeah. So like Northern Europe and America can protect their agriculture through massive amounts of subsidy. Like we have American peanut farmers who are only profitable because of government subsidy and they're putting out of business peanut farms elsewhere, right? right? Like where peanuts should actually grow. We're like, they're actually, you know, made to sort of grow and where they grow naturally and well. Um, and, you know, that's the way of the world is that we've created food dependency. And then on the energy side, it's interesting because obviously through the seven sisters, like, uh, you know, seven multinational uh, petroleum corporations, like the West did control the energy flows for a long time. Um, but then during decolonialization, uh, OPEC was created. Like the, these mm -hmm. former kind of countries that were controlled by the West in ways uh, ended up banding together and creating their own like, cartel right to, to their own back. competing car cartel <laughs> correct well right yeah. we still we it's true we still have a lot of energy uh, oil and energy but they, they they 
at the, by the early seventies, let's just say OPEC was controlling like more sure. than 80%, like they were controlling a lot. Right. So yeah. it gave them this new power. And it's interesting that, and I never really hear people talk about this, but you know, one of the obvious reasons we had a really inflationary decade in the seventies in hindsight, um, is because of the end of colonialism. Like, like during colonial times, we could just kind of control the prices of these things. And like afterwards, after OPEC had power and became depend independent, they could just decide they, they could say, screw you, we're going to make prices higher. And yeah. oil, and, oil and we oil. instantly paid an enormous price for it. Yeah. Oil went from $2 to $12 a barrel, you know, in the early seventies. And, you know, but that was their, you know, whatever, that was their right to do that. And I, I think that's one of the, the consequences of decolonialization over time. And it's why Western empires resist it is because it makes things more expensive for us. Again, yes. the whole point of colonialism is to get cheap food and energy and cheap wages to make us stuff uh, mm -hmm. and to create markets where people are forced to buy things at a higher than market price from us. That was the whole game the whole time. The whole right. game the whole time was to have wage depression or wage deflation in the periphery so that it could prop up wages in the core. And that's where I would agree with like Marx and these other Marxist scholars. Like they understood this. They, they, they realized this, like the way that the world worked. And that's not a, that's been happening ever since like humanity created civilizations. We've always had the powerful and the weak, right? Of course. And, and it continues today. It's just the problem is the powerful uh, are, are, are now hidden behind a giant poster on the side of their building in Washington that says end poverty. And they're mm -hmm. going, ma they're masquerading as like, you know, some sort of like uh, saviors when in reality they're perpetrating uh, what they claim to be trying to end. And yeah. I've told, I've told this story a few times, but the, there was uh, the biggest private prison company in America uh, was getting its ESG score knocked down for beating the crap out of its prisoners. Uh -huh. And their solution was to put up uh, murals of MLK in the yard at some of their prisons, and that helped their ESG score. Uh, it's kind of a similar story to what you're talking about. It's just uh, it's window dressing to the same old yeah. story. But I, one thing I do want to add, uh, I yeah. know you're on, you're on a roll here, but I, 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 I'm just constantly thinking to myself, like, there is the reason that libertarians have gotten inflation predictions wrong. Mm -hmm. Peter Schiff immediately comes to mind. Yeah. Um, is because he has not taken into consideration what we're talking about here. The, the amount of exportation of inflation that we do to the rest of the world, basically they, absorb, oh, it's enormous. they absorb all of it. I mean, he's right. If we weren't the reserve currency of the world, that if we were to have printed Correct. Trillions of dollars in 2020, we would be in 50% inflation right now, probably. But that's just not the case because all of those dollars go to all these other economies that got locked down. They're all borrowing hand over fist. So like that money gets absorbed. And I think that's the, I mean, even though we are dealing with some inflation, it's it's relatively mild compared yeah, to many the, parts the, of the country. The dollar right? is the, like the least bad fiat is the reality. Exactly. Um, exactly. And until but that changes. This is why. You know. Yeah, I mean, the the why, this is why is that everybody's stuck in like a, and this might be changing a little bit actually, but generally speaking, you know, we're, we're we're living in a world where debt is generally denominated in dollars. So yes, well, um, the reason I think it's I'm afraid that it's changing is because mm -hmm. I think that World War Three is a real threat in that inflection point. Yeah, and look, we might be going to a world where energy and other things are increasingly priced in other currencies and we'll, we'll, we'll see I, I don't think the dollar empire was something that could be sustained forever i mean i think no. it, had, it had quite the run um but uh yeah and it's still still kicking um but uh i, I would like to see it end but i just realized it's <laughs> yeah it's no. going to be extraordinarily painful I, and 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 i mean to me the the reason you saw world war ii pop off is in part 
because of the empires that you described earlier, the French and the British that were kind of collapsing mm -hmm. at the time. Yeah. And now the U.S. empire is on its way down. You have some other rising powers and you're in that Thuc Thucydides trap period where you're like, can we get through this without nuking each other? And I don't know what the answer is. Yeah, and, and look, I'm like, I want to be quite clear. I'm very pro-American in terms of American values. Uh, I'm sure. very pro- uh, Me too, maybe, for the record. <laughs> and, 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 you know, maybe provocatively for your audience, I'm like very pro-liberal, I'm pro-democracy, I believe in democracy as opposed to other political systems. But like, the point is that um, my day job is I work to help people live under dictatorships. Like, I'm very aware that even despite all the things we're talking about here, like people, they still want to come to America around the world, like all over, sure. like they'd rather be in, in, you'd rather be in Texas than Tibet. I mean, it's just like the reality, right? So um, I, I, I just think that things like the IMF and World Bank and our exploitation of poor countries and our control over the world currency system and our needless forever wars abroad and all these things, like we'd be better off without them. Like, I think that Americans would be very strong in a world where we were less of a, an oppressor. Uh, I, I think that's a point that I, I wanted to make when I was listening to your piece, and I'm glad you brought it up now. A lot of people will only perceive this as a, as a negative for the developing world. And, and I would encourage mm -hmm. people to reflect on the cultural decay that comes along with being basically the spoiled kid of mm -hmm. the world, you know? And, and yeah. I think, I think that it, it, it forms very soft, you know, people both spiritually, mentally, physically, like it, like there's a lot of downsides to this that, that come with kind of a, a more affluent, but unearned lifestyle. And I think that that's what America has lived through for the past hundred years or so. And, and it's now we're kind of getting the hard times and none of us are equipped for it. <laughs> it's like, it's going to be, it's going to be wild to see, but uh, sorry, that's just a side note. I want to No, make. it's okay. I mean, so if we go back to the, the, the narrative here, um, I guess the question that we need to answer now is like, so how do, how, how do the IMF and World Bank exploit these poor countries? Um, mm -hmm. and, um, so, the IMF from the beginning would use something called structural adjustment, which is the title of my essay. So basically when a country needed to borrow from the IMF, the IMF would come to it and say, well, here's the money. Um, number one, this is not a gift. I mean, I think this is where people kind of get confused in development economics. Like you have to remember that the lion's share, the virtual majority in most cases of, of, of quote unquote development assistance is not grants. These aren't gifts. These aren't donations. Uh, these are, these are loans. Um, and I think that people forget that, uh, the very simple fact that when you borrow, you have to pay back P&I. You have to pay back not only what you borrowed, but also the interest. And any credit card holder knows this, but I mean, I, I, people tend to forget it in development economics. So like these bailouts are not just, these are not gifts. These are, you need to pay back this plus more later. So right. we, you know, one forgets that like the IMF and World Bank are making money off of, off of this uh, agenda through the global cancel on effect as described earlier. Mm -hmm. Like they're making money on the spread. They're making money on the interest. Like, it's it's a profitable thing but they get um, to pretend to be altruistic how beautiful yeah exactly like i think the popular perception is that they're somehow ngo or whatever but like right. you know couldn't be farther from the truth they're making money off this stuff um the other thing is that um it, is that it's not just like we're not just benefiting by the loan um we we also have this thing called like the double loan effect which i find like incredibly pernicious and it's totally shaped the world so and, and uh, France did it. China does it today. Like all, all empires do it. But like basically what happens is like 
the greater power will make a loan, and whether it's bilateral, just country to country, or through the IMF um, or through the World Bank, you'll make a loan and it's used for, like in the World Bank's case, let's just say we're talking about a World Bank loan to Latin America in the 70s. And let's say it's for a hydroelectric dam. Okay, so we know that the World Bank's controlled by these creditors who are these large Western countries. Um, so the loan gets distributed through what's called a standby agreement, which is like a credit line. And basically like the country, let's say Brazil, um, is gonna borrow a half billion dollars. And uh, they get to borrow it over a two year time period. And then, they have a, and then they have 20 years to pay it back. That's like a pretty standard you know, a great arrangement back then. Maybe the loan is at like 8%. Mm -hmm. Okay. So um, over the first two years, they get, they're in the black, like they, they get credited. They have money that they were given uh, in, in do dollar denominated money that they were given by the world bank. And they, they take that money, right? So now they owe uh, the world bank, like whatever, half billion dollars plus, in, plus 8% interest, right? Over, over time, right? So they're going to end up owing closer to a billion when all is said and done, right? Um, but, you know, you have that fact, but then you also have this part of it, what's called a double loan. So what happens is that Brazil hires uh, like a French or a German or an American company to build the dam. So the money that has just come in immediately goes back to the West, okay? <laughs> so, uh you got this half billion dollar like loan that immediately gets spent on contractors from the West. Sure. So the West like is, is takes the money right back and the poor country still owes P and I. So the West gets paid twice. So that's like the double loan phenomenon that all empires like enforce on their, on, on poor countries. And that to me is crazy. I mean, I, I have a P I have a section in the, in the article about it, but it's like, man, I mean, a very high percentage of all the aid, quote unquote, all the assistance given out comes right back to us. Six yeah. cent, 60 cents on the dollar, 70 cents on the dollar. It's, it's, it's a lot of it is like, oh, we're going to help you build a school. Well, who's going to build the school? Well, probably not an Ethiopian, you know, construction company. No, it'll be an Italian one or an American one or whatever. Right. So, so you have number one, you have just the general economics of P&I and the fact that these are not gifts. These are very expensive loans traditionally. Um, very, very expensive, usually, uh, historically speaking. Number two, you have the double loan phenomenon. So the money's coming right back to the West and, and then the poor country is saddled with, uh, with the bill. And, and often, and again, like, what are these projects? Like, who, who, who are they benefiting? For, for many, many decades, and even still today in some cases, these aren't projects meant to like empower the local population or like build roads to connect communities. No, a traditional World Bank loan would do something like build a mining site in a mountain somewhere yes. uh, to extract bauxite and then build a train to put the bauxite on a track to take it to a port, build a port, and then have it ferried off to international markets. So of course. The, why, the why wouldn't they do that? <laughs> the, the dictator would borrow... And it's this is I'll get into that, but the whole dictator thing is very important. But like the unaccountable leader of the country or the dictator would borrow the money, okay, and they would spend it immediately on a Western company to build a port and a train and a mine, um, and then and then they would get a slice. Like the dictator would get ten to twenty percent, okay. But the other ninety to eighty percent would not benefit the local population. It was yeah. going to, out to international markets. Mm -hmm. So all of this is done. And yet the local population is who ends up having to pay the loan back in the NPNI, the taxpayers of the poor country. Okay. Yes. So they get totally fucked basically. Mm -hmm. um, and, 
in general, that's like, that's the kind of loan that was being made for like, quote unquote, infrastructure. It was it was infrastructure that would be meant to do one of two main things, uh, export raw, raw goods or materials out for, for rich countries to use. Um, you can think of today, um, obviously on Rogan recently, like, 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 like rare earth materials for our phones and computers and stuff. It's a great example. Like none of that stuff benefits the local population. It all benefits us, whether it be the companies making the phones in China or the U S or, uh, or, or the people using them. Right. Um, and then the people in that country usually end up paying the price, whether it be environmental or, or, uh, you know, social or, or, or the actual cost of yeah, setting up physical structure. Yeah. Um, so there's that aspect of it. Um, and then you also have, uh, you know, be, be, beyond like the raw materials stuff, uh, you would have agriculture. So again, you had all these poor countries who were, you know, they, they were poor, but they, like people were growing stuff to feed themselves. That was all changed by the world bank and IMF policy over many decades to no, you're not going to grow that anymore. You're going to grow cotton and cocoa and tea and coffee and shrimp and rubber and palm oil. You're going to grow stuff that you're not even going to consume. You're going to grow stuff to sell for us that we want. Okay. So, you know, you went from proud, poor people who, you know, again, didn't have a lot, but at least they could feed themselves and they were independent and they had agency to people who are still relatively the same amount of impoverishment. Like they're mm -hmm. sure they have a TV and a phone or whatever, but like compared to the 1% in their society, they're just as poor as they were a hundred years ago compared right. to the 1% back then. Um, and yet they don't, they can't make their own food anymore. They have to buy it from us. So these policies were designed to just like basically like like rape out of the ground, like like all the resources from these countries uh, and at the same time engineer and sculpt those societies so that they'd be dependent instead of independent. So, so and, that's and indebted too. I mean, it's catastrophic on so many fronts. I I'm man. It's so it's so sad to think about. But you know, I right, I right. Want... They, no, they, meaning they, meaning the the taxpayer of these uh, of these poor countries were the ones who would pay the bill, right, for their own, uh, for their own dependency. Yes, like, yes. Like they paid for the transition from being independent to being dependent. They <laughs> right. paid for the transition from being able to grow food for themselves to not being able to. And of course, they were told that it was some modern magic agriculture thing, and they just had to grow this other thing, and then they'd be making more money. In reality, this led to many decades of uh, wage deflation and a devaluation of currency and all these things. Right. And, and, and the backdrop is that... Um, this is the mechanism of how the loans would work and what they would fund. Uh, but in addition, the the country that received the money would have to agree to something called structural adjustment. So not only do you have the very just general idea that like the loans are benefiting the, the, the West and they have this double loan phenomenon and that the projects themselves are usually like focusing on like, you know, spiriting away all the valuable things from these countries to our markets. And um, they're, they're, they're designed to make these people dependent on us. Um, but the structural adjustment policy was like a mix of things that countries would have to agree to uh, that really like resonated with what, with, with what we've been talking about, like would make it easier for, for extraction of resources mm -hmm. and, and make it easier for, that agriculture to, to favor what multinationals wants that exactly. what locals want. Yeah. It's going to be and, foreign and, business it, investment. And yeah, all that. it would be a mix of things like, like a, actually a mixed bag of things that I think your audience would be appalled at, but also like, Oh, maybe that's reasonable. Right. So <laughs> right, right. on the one hand, it would be like, 
higher taxes, currency devaluation, special rules for multinational companies, shrinking of domestic bank credit, like things that would, you know, that that we that that libertarians at least would would be appalled at. And on the other hand, though, you would have things like um, uh, an end to subsidies for food and energy, basic food and energy, like an end to handouts. You'd have a, a, a ceiling on uh, wages, uh, things like that. So things that like small government people might agree with. The problem is, and the reason why I think small government people should be opposed to structural adjustment, even if it is kind of like neoliberal in a way or like free market in a way, right? Because like in a way it's it's like ending subsidies and it's it's getting rid of the government in these countries over ownership of certain industries. Um, what you have to understand is that it's a double standard, right? So the reason why it's bad is not, it's not because that these policies help privatize uh, industries. And it's not because that these policies help end uh, subsidies on, on, on fuel and on food, which, which like in a like hypothetical pure free trade world would make sense and would be good. Of course. It's that the, oppressors of the system, the maintainers of the system don't abide by the same rules. So the people who run the empires have never had to structurally adjust ever. In fact, the US is the biggest debt empire in the world. I mean, we're the biggest debtor nation. We've never had to structurally adjust <laughs> like a fat chance, right? So yeah. the, the dominant countries get to protect their industries with agricultural subsidies and with, with um, socialized healthcare and with um, uh, steel tariffs and all this stuff. Meanwhile, the poor countries, I mean, you had this little Sri Lanka, you know, they're giving out free rice to their people in the seventies. Now, was that a, was that a good economic idea? Probably not, but you got to realize when you go from having free rice to having really expensive rice, a lot of people are going to die. Right. So like, it wasn't that in theory, like some of these structural adjustment things, like, yes, in theory, they made sense. It's that in reality, it was brutal and, and hyper hypocritical because the well, countries that were issuing the structural adjustment, they didn't do the same thing. They were in fact beefing up the NHS in Britain and France was beefing up its state run nuclear program. Right. And the United States was beefing up its, you know, minimum wage and, and it's, 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 it, yeah. you know, socialized healthcare for so, social safety net for us, but not for you. Exactly. Right. Yeah. And, and I think that the, the thing that bothers me most about it is that, you know, as you said, whether or not I would agree with some of those policies in, a, in an actual free market situation, that this isn't it's not voluntary, in my opinion, because no. like you you have I mean, you're you're referencing dictators, but I'm sure there's some yeah. democratically elected leaders that have gone down this path too probably many. And and I would oppose that anyways. Sure. Like, I, I think that if you're going to take on it, just as I oppose the 31 trillion that I'm quote unquote that i'm exactly. quote unquote in debt for it's like yeah. i don't do any of this shit why why should i be yeah. like they uh, we ought to all default on this because none of us did it it's not right i didn't vote for any and, of it so and maybe that's where i you know it would really sparked my interest was that my day job is working again for an organization that that tries to help people live under dictatorship and you know i i I can connect all the dots and I understand now that, you know, a lot of these dictators are, are creatures of us. You know, we created them, we maintain them, right? And I think that's important to understand. But it's also important to just understand that these people have their own independent struggles. Like the U.S. is not relevant for a lot of them in an immediate sense. Like they mm -hmm. are, a lot of these people have are living in cultures that are older than the U.S., um, that that pre-exist, that predate the U.S. And, and they would find our, they would find assertions that like, the only thing that matters is U.S. policy as very arrogant. Like they have their own stuff going on down there. And to, to well, say that- Well, it is arrogant. <laughs> well, to say that the U.S. like makes these conflicts or in some cases, you know, is 
robs them of their own agency. I mean, I think there's a there's a fine line to draw here between understanding the role that we've had and also like, you know, and allowing, you know, for, for independent agency. But the reality but the reality is that um, you know, for, for 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 many, many decades, these policies would basically treat these countries like like a private equity firm would think about a, a company that it's about to acquire. Yes. Okay. So um, you would have, uh, you know, your focus is on uh, maximizing profits and reducing uh, expenditures, mm -hmm. which might make sense for a company, but for a body politic, for like a, like a nation of people who are, you know, full of blood and skeletons. And we're, we're like people, we have bodies, right? Yeah. We, we have nutritional needs. We have, you know, to, 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 to reduce expenditures and maximize profits like for, in this way is monstrous. So, you know, yes, what ends it, up, it's not, it's not even maximizing profits though, because you're, you're just paying those profits well, towards the debt that you owe. Well, it's maximizing profits for us, for the West. Like, yes, no, I know. But like, if you're, if you're going to sell it as, well, this would be a good thing for the people theoretically, because it's cutting expenditures. It's like, but it's not <laughs> for them. It's not. So it's like, it's just, it seems like a net negative on both no, sides. Right. For them. And, and, and in, you know, what is the toll of this over many decades? Right. So the toll is that like you had waged uh, deflation in these countries, like between the sixties and the nineties, let's say, and even still today in some cases. So like mean, meaning, meaning the number of hours one has to work to get a thousand calories of beef or wheat or rice actually goes up. Okay. Yes. So whereas in our societies, like we're working less and less for the same, you know, when I say we meaning like upper class people or middle class people in rich countries, we're working less and less sometimes for, for the same amount of stuff. These people are working more and more and more. And, you know, when you're, when your population growth is going up, and yet the earnings of your nation is going down in real terms. That's a big problem. That's a really big problem. And it's actually, it can be, it can be kind of quantified in terms of deaths. So one study of Mexico, which is like a pretty large developing country that has had a long experience with the IMF World Bank. So it's, I would say it's a pretty typical nation. So when you looked at Mexico, they did a bunch of field studies recently. And they basically said whenever there was like a 2% decline in GDP per capita, uh, there would be a 1% increase in mortality rates. So you're talking mm. about, let's say for a country of 100 million people, a 2% decline in GDP would mean a million people die, right? You know, so or, or die prematurely, right? So the thing is, between the 60s and 90s, like, you had stretches where some of these countries contracted 10, 20, 30% over a decade. And, you know, wages went way, way down. So basically, the, the authors of these structural adjustment policies are responsible for the deaths of tens of millions of people. I mean, it's the, it's the, it's the inescapable conclusion of where this all leads. And it's very, very grim. And it also leads me to, to, to ponder things like, Next time you visit Brussels or London or Paris or New York City or Tokyo, like these capitals of empire, and you look around and you, you think about how proud you are of that place or how beautiful it is or how accomplished it is or how many amazing things came of the, out of the intellectual, uh, architectural, uh, industrial uh, power of those places. Like, what did we bring to the world? Wow, we really like gifted so many amazing things in terms of science and literature and all these things. You also have to understand that Yes, part of it was because of freedoms of things that you and I would love, like individual freedoms, private property, entrepreneurialism, um, free speech, like part of why Western civilization, quote unquote, was so successful was, of course, because of civil liberties and, and freedom, of course. But I think that too often we forget that the other half of why 
we're so successful and prosperous and innovative is because we stole a bunch of stuff from poor countries for a long time. And we continue to do so. Yep. And we've been subsidized by their suffering. And, and that is in the inescapable conclusion of, of where the rabbit hole leads with this. And there is no solution. Said. I mean, it's just, you should reflect on it. Next time you're in a place like that and you go across a bridge and you're looking at London or New York or something, just think about it. Just, just ponder it for a few minutes. I mean, it's quite deep and I've done it a lot recently. And, you know, if I didn't have some sort of like future looking, you know, thing to keep me hopeful, I'd be pretty depressed. <laughs> the, the, the good news is that there, there, there could be, you know, an end to this. And, um, I think that, uh, part of the, you start to, you start to unravel like where the, where the, light at the end of the tunnel is when you start to realize this is a Ponzi scheme. So back in the seventies, um, people realized actually that, that the only way that these poor countries could pay off all this debt and this debt was going from like, um, you know, this debt was going from like, uh, I'll give you an example, like a country like, uh, Bangladesh had about a hundred million, hundred million dollars in external debt that it owed in, in the early seventies. And now it owes about a hundred billion. Okay, so the 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 debt um, uh, of the third world has gone up exponentially since since 1971, since since the end of the gold standard. Um, so I'll just give you some quick numbers here that I think are important to um, uh, to, to like to, to give some context here. Um, so uh, let's see, we'll start with this one. So. All right. So, so like to, 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 to give some context for what we're talking about here, um, the, the debt of these countries um, increased from 1970 uh, from 46 billion, which if you added up all of the debt of all the poor countries, all the developing countries, all the middle class and lower class countries, it was about 46 billion. So today it's 8.7 trillion. <laughs> so in relative terms, like in over 50 years, countries like the India and Philippines and the Congo owe their former colonial masters, 189 times the amount they owed in 1970. Um, <laughs> and, and if you look at this chart, of, it's just an exponential chart of debt. Yeah. And they paid, they paid $4.2 trillion on interest payments alone since 1980. Okay. And what's been happening is like, again, the drain. So initially you would think that like, okay, what do rich countries do? We give money to poor countries. And that was the case for a long time, right? So pre-1982, it's true. Um, there was a flow of resources from, from, from rich countries to poor countries. Um, but since 1982, and this was shocking to me to learn, it's been the opposite. So since 1982, poor countries have had a net flow of resources to rich countries. And this is what we mean by replacing the colonial drain that like we used to use, we used to get with like ships and guns and muskets and slaves. We used to drain resources out of countries in the, in the periphery, in the global South. Now we do it with debt. So since 82, uh, you have a flow of resources coming our way. So to give you an example, in 2012, developing countries received 1.3 trillion. That was like all aid, income, and investment. But that same year, more than 3.3 trillion flowed out. So, so that year, developing countries sent 2 trillion more to the rest of the world than they received. So when you add up all the flows, there was a study that did this from, from 1960 to 2017, um, $62 trillion was drained out of the developing world. So that's the equivalent in 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 today's dollars of 620 Marshall plans. So the Marshall plan was, um, you know, was like a hundred billion dollars. And, right. you know, it, it's, it's, it's absolutely staggering. Uh, well, I think it, what's, what's funny about this is like, it also 
explains much of the kind of uh, the prejudices or the racism view of say Africa, for instance, you know, how people will be like, Oh, these people, you know, they have all these resources and yet they're still poor. And it's like, yeah, but there's a reason there, you know, like there's a really good reason. Yeah. And, they've been kept poor. And yeah, you know, like, the, like, and again, I mentioned McNamara earlier and he, he was so influential because he really helped in the seventies. Like these, these institutions started lending like on a, on a frenzy. So uh, the cost of capital was relatively low in the early to mid seventies. And McNamara really realized that the only way that these countries could keep paying back what they owed was to get more debt. Um, and there was like a private sector incentive too. Like, for example, if like you're a bank that's ultimately a creditor of the of the World Bank or whatever, um, or you're a, a bank that's made a loan to one of these poor countries and they go bankrupt, mm -hmm. your two options are okay, you can agree to the bankruptcy and write off the write off the asset on your balance sheet. You don't want to do that. You'd no. rather just make another loan, right? Yeah. So this is where the Ponzi scheme comes from: is that the IMF would help and the World Bank would help um, any of these countries who would literally run out of money they would come back to the bank and fund and say, I can't pay rather than the bank and fund saying, well, you know, maybe you should like think about doing X or Y or Z. Um, you know, here's just a bunch of more money. That's even more expensive. This is, mm -hmm. this is the debt trap. And this is why you have countries on this exponential debt increase. And it's like, again, it'd be one thing if they were even paying using this money to invest in their own societies, they weren't. So uh, there's one study that showed between 76 and 81 um, Latin American governments, of which, by the way, 18 of the 21 were dictatorships. Okay, okay. They, they borrowed almost $300 billion during those five years. And mm -hmm. out of that, 91% was spent on debt service, capital flight, and building up reser res reserves for the regime. So only so 8.4% 9, so was used on domestic investment, meaning right. building schools or God knows what, making your society more productive. So not only did you have more and more and more borrowing, but it wasn't even going to the right reasons. And this is why I started exploring this in the first place was because I, I, I'm interested in dictatorship and the nature of, of autocracy. And mm -hmm. the record of the IMF and World Bank on this is so bad. I mean, they never met a dictator they didn't like. I mean, mm -hmm. and it wasn't even, originally I thought it was a Cold War thing. Not even really. I mean, they funded all kinds of leftists and communists. Like, yep. you know, originally I thought, well, they must have only funded uh, the right wing regimes and they must have put pressure on the left wing ones, et cetera. And there's part of that for yeah. sure. Some, but, I'm sure. Yeah. But dude, they, they funded Kochescu, Tito, uh, Mengistu, Mengistu in Ethiopia, all kinds of leftists over time. Yeah. So they, they it, didn't care. They were they were lending to anybody. No. They, they this isn't a Cold to... War thing. This is a cold, hard cash thing. Brother. Exactly. That's a good line. Um <laughs> It, no, it's true. And, but if, if you tally it all up, it's really staggering. So, and this isn't even fully up to date, but by 2015, the drain totaled 10.1 billion tons of raw material and 182 million person years of labor. So that was, uh, that was that year. So 2015, so that was 50% of all the goods and 28% of all the labor used by high income countries was trained yeah. from poor countries. So when I say subsidizing our way of life, that's literally what I mean. I mean, imagine ha having just generally like 50% less stuff um, and a third, essentially less time and effort. Oh, it's so an enormous subsidy. We, we, so we continue to subsidize our way of life here. So, so how does this end? So the only way this can continue is on a fiat standard. The only way this works is because the U.S. government can print the reserve currency. Um, now, people like me believe that one day in the next two decades, like there will be a point where the dollar will will cease to become the reserve currency. Now, I know that some people are looking at what India and China and the, uh, 
you know, the golf are doing and they're like, well, you know, what if it's, you know, the rupee or the, the RMB or I don't think it's going to be another fiat currency. I, I do think there is, regardless of Bitcoin, going to be a multipolarity here where you're going to have a lot more global trade and energy priced in other currencies, mm-hmm. uh, fiat currencies. I think that's true. And I think that will increase the uh, debt burden on the United States because it will mean that our debt itself will be less desired as a financial collateral and as a savings instrument. Um, and when you stop having almost all of the world's oil and all the derivatives on top of it priced in dollars, when, when, when maybe it's only 70% instead of 95%, you just lose a lot of demand for the dollar. And then when, when countries start to like sell off some treasuries over time, like the, the, even the marginal effects of like going from 95% to 90% or whatever is huge. So I think what you end up having is it's going to be more expensive for the U S government to issue debt. Um, and that's like a short term thing that I think is coming. Um, but but longer term, I don't I don't think it's going to be China. I think China's screwed. I mean, if you look at China, China civilizationally, they're going to lose half their population in the next 60 or 70 years. Mm-hmm. They're going to collapse. I, I don't think it's going to be. I'm not a Ray Dalio. I don't think it's going to be China. Um, and I don't think it's going to be the Gulf. And I don't think it's going to be Russia. And I don't I, the birth rates of these countries are not great. And, you know, I think India is very interesting, but I don't think India is going to be like this global imperial power. Um, I think it'll be a multipolar world, but I think it'll be a world where um, where Bitcoin ultimately becomes the reserve currency. That's that's what I believe. I think it was born for it. I think it's made for it. And I think in that world, it becomes very difficult to finance the IMF and World Bank as they are. Um, I think that they can still exist, but like I think they'll have to be a lot more careful and prudent about the loans they make. Um, and they'll have to be they'll have to have more skin in the game and they won't be able to exploit as easily. So, or they may just collapse entirely, but it, it, you know, at the end of the day, like today, if Brazil wants a $30 billion bailout and the U S Congress likes the Brazilian government, like they're pro pro Lula right now, right? They could do that. Okay. So it's a matter of paperwork. We just fucking file some paperwork and we give them $30 billion. Okay. But if it's a Bitcoin standard, no, the reserve currency is not just printable. We have to actually get the Bitcoin. So you and whose Bitcoin are going to do that $30 billion, right? right? So I think it's just going to be more cautious and I think it'll lead to less exploitation. The other thing that's really interesting is that in a world with a Bitcoin standard, you don't have this like uh, privilege that the US has today where we can literally print money with a keyboard to buy oil or weapons or infrastructure. Um, no country will have that uh, privilege, Okay means that we'll all have to work for it, which is much more fair. But it also means that because Bitcoin can be printed with energy, even the poorest country. So like today, these little poor countries that have nothing like Malawi or El Salvador or whatever, right? They like they don't they can't print dollars like they have to like export stuff for dollars, right? Mm-hmm. Meaning they have to get us to agree to buy it <laughs> like there, there's like a permission here. Well, guess what? Guess what? El Salvador has and Malawi have volcanoes. So even though it's not like a huge, huge amount, they will be able to, they'll be able to, without asking us permission, mine some Bitcoin. Okay. Mm -hmm. So that's better than being able to mine. No, they can't mine any U S dollar right now. (laughs) They have to export stuff that we want and it shapes their economy in this sinister way, et cetera, et cetera. So, um, the fact that they'll be able to, to like permissionlessly create some of the world reserve currency that all countries will be able to do that, whether it be solar or hydro or coal or wind or gas, whatever it ends up being like all countries have some sort of energy, uh, that they have. Um, and they'll be able to monetize that with Bitcoin mining. And I think that's really, really cool. So I I think there's some interesting stuff to think about here. 
Um, maybe the, the world will be different in the future. But the big conclusion of my piece is that we just need to reflect a little more on our history, on what we've done and what we continue to do. I mean, the, the IMF's bigger than ever. It's a trillion dollars. Like we gave, they, they gave out more money during the lockdowns than ever before. Like it's like, again, it's um, if you looked at it, like during the eighties, when the third world debt crisis happened, they, they gave the IMF and world bank gave out more money than they ever gave out. And then in the nineties, the money they gave out during the Asian financial crisis and the peso crisis dwarfed that money. And then in the 2010s, when Europe started to collapse, the money that they bailed out Greece and, and Iceland and Poland and Spain and whatever dwarfed what they gave out in the nineties. And, right. and during the two, in the last two years, what they gave out in the wake of the lockdowns created dwarfed, dwarfed all of that. So every yeah. time there's like a new crisis, the amount of money that's lent out just increases. Well, it's a and, classic Ponzi scheme. Yeah. And, and to, to finish the, the full narrative here, what you'd realize is that so much of that borrowed money is what is, is what I would consider odious or what, what is unethical. So like, and you mentioned it before, but like, let's actually take a, a little more generous view. Let's say that, um, like I, I'll just, you know, I'll just give you my opinion. I, I, Cause I, I would consider like, you know, the debt of a democratic country slightly more legitimate than the debt of a, a colonial empire or a yeah, dictator. I think that's fair. And, and it's all shades of gray, right. To, to right. your point, but like, let's just, cause I never voted to send tr troops to, to, to Libya or whatever. Right. <laughs> no. So, right. So, but like, let's just say shades of gray. Right. So a hundred plus years ago during the Spanish American war, the U S courts and policymakers, came up with this idea of odious debt. And they basically said, when we kicked out the Spanish empire from Cuba, the Cubans didn't owe the debt that the Spanish empire had incurred mm -hmm. because they were subjugating the Cubans. And of course, I'm like morally totally with that, of course. The problem is the INF and World Bank have never used that legal precedent. So in 86, the Filipinos kicked out Marcos after decades of, of him engorging himself and on borrowing, foreign borrowing. And he left tens of billions of dollars that they owed and the Filipino people for years after had to pay 40 to 50% of their entire national revenue to pay back debt that he incurred on them. The IMF and world bank would never consider writing off that debt. So countries had to eventually just pay that down. And, and, that, and a lot of the borrowing today is, is, is borrowing to cover costs of debt borrowed by dictators. Um, <laughs> and, you know, I talked a lot with the deflation scholar, Jeff Booth about this, but like, basically like, you know, in a fiat system, this is possible. Like, and you think about the bubble, the dot-com bubble is nothing. Like the, the subprime bubble is nothing. The, even the stimulus bubble, the COVID stimulus bubble is nothing compared to the biggest bubble of them all, which is the sovereign debt bubble. And the sovereign debt bubbles, trillions and trillions and trillions of dollars. And what's crazy is when you think about it, so much of it is unethical. So much of it is what we would call odious. And you know what? That's not going to go away completely, but I think we do enter a world here in the next few decades where this thing unwinds. And look, I hope to God it doesn't unwind in a rapture. I hope it unwinds slowly because otherwise the pain that's going to be inflicted on people around the world is so awful. And, yes. you know, I'm, again, I'm, I'm critical of the dollar system and the way it works. And I, I hope for a world where there's a different neutral open currency that nobody controls that roots Certainly. us all. But for now, this is one reason I, in the crypto world, I, I, I support stable coins because I mean, the dollar's the best of all of them right now. Like you look at Lebanon or Nigeria, these poor people, their their local currency is totally collapsing. So, you know, as long as we're in the fiat standard, I think it's cool that they can get a US dollar a asset on their phone without ID. And that's what Tether is. So you have these people in Palestine and Lebanon and Argentina, all these places, they can finally get dollars without not, without a bank account on their mm -hmm. phone through stable coins. And I know there's some sketchy stuff going on with stable coins, but like, hey, for now, it's like kind of like a Band-Aid. 
to me, ultimately the solution long-term is Bitcoin. Um, but there are some other things we can do along the way to help people out. Um, you know, but as far as the mechanics of how we get there, who knows? The point is that we need to reflect more on the world that exists. And it's, it's something you can, you know, people just need to know. Uh, and, and it's sad because a lot of people won't acknowledge it and they'll say, I got into so many arguments with like people who work at the world bank or whatever. And it's, it's crazy how ignorant they are even about their own institutions. Oh, I mean, sure. they just don't know this stuff. I mean, uh, there is the banality of evil thing, right? Like they, they're, they're not, they're not personally responsible and they don't know. So therefore they think they're, they're, they're fine. And right. you know what, maybe that's fine. But like the people who run these organizations are totally aware of what's happening. I mean, they see the numbers. Oh, at the highest so, level, of course. But uh, I mean, it's also the, the old saying of like, you can't teach a man something that goes against how he feeds himself. You know, exactly. it's like they're, they're working there. I, I don't, I don't blame them for having a, a hard but, time looking in its face. But, but, but this system is without a paradigm shift, the system will go on and it will go on in this grotesque way where it grows and grows and grows and then collapses. And it, 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 it just, People, well, in hate- the, people in the periphery suffer so much more than we do. I mean, we, we, su- we suffer. I mean, look, the, the, the 80s was a tough time in America for many people uh, after Volcker raised all those rates and made things really expensive. And, you know, still the sub- a picnic s- compared to most of the world. And the subprime crisis sucked <laughs> and it was terrible for so many people yeah, who lost their jobs. But, dude, it was like nothing compared to what happens in some of these countries around the yes. world. So yes. let's just give ourselves some context and, you know, people can read the piece and, you know, draw their own conclusions. Um, but yeah, I'm really grateful for you having me on here. Oh man, that was phenomenal. It, it's it's rare that I have a guest that I'm like, this guy needs to leave this studio and get, go straight to Joe Rogan. But I, I really do believe that, um, you know, the message you're spreading, especially the fact that like, I think my, my biggest critique that I have for for the, the left-leaning mm-hmm. people that identify this issue is that oftentimes yeah. they, will, they will call, in my opinion, very... Uh, ironically and counterintuitively for socialism as the solution. And, and I think that what you see in these systems is like, if you empower either the dictator or the quote unquote democratically elected guy, well, it, the, all of the incentives are aligned to bribe him, buy him, own him. So like, you're going to continue to have this stream of either CIA or world bank or IMF, uh, you know, conquest. The, the craziest so, thing on that point is uh, yeah. For, for many decades, like their answer was, less power for the multinational companies in the West. These were like the Marxists, right? Who, who, who did point out many things that were quite accurate and stunning. Sure. Um, they were, they would say, let's take the power away from the Western companies and corporations and powers, and let's give it back to the local country. But they were the ones who were also pointing out that these were all dictators. So, hmm. so how is that going to work? So that, <laughs> that, that never, it didn't make any sense to me. Um, but you know, because what? it they doesn't make sense, <laughs> but they, but, you know, you feel sorry for, for them and for, for the world sure. because what, what, what options did you have if you were Ghanaian in the eighties? Like the yeah. cool part is today. And I don't want to like trivialize what's happening, but like, it is true that like with Bitcoin, like people can escape to a different economic system. They can connect to a 24 seven trading world that, that their local government doesn't control and that the U S government doesn't control. And I think mm-hmm. that's really freaking cool. So I think we're going to build some serious bridges here in the coming decades um, through this open you know, permissionless system that can't discriminate uh, and that kind of trends more towards uh, a system that, that gets away from these high interest predatory loans and, and more towards actual building productive capital. I, I think we had more in that direction. Um, but regardless, 
you know, this conversation is, is really about reflecting on, on the last 60, 70 yeah. years and on what, what is part of our, our identity. And mm-hmm. look, we don't have any counterfactuals. We don't have a world where the U S got to where it is without being predatory. Um, which makes you ask a lot of deep questions about what is, what, what is quote unquote capitalism. Like, and that's why the Marxists got all fired up is they were yeah. like, they were like, wait, so you're telling me this is the only way we can have the, you know, am, is the only way we can have Silicon Valley and wall street and Amazon and all these things like the exploitation of all these like poor people. Is this the only way? And, you know, I think that's a fair question. Like we don't have a freaking counterfactual. So right. like, I don't know if the U S could have gotten as powerful as it could have, if it didn't have things like the IMF and world bank exploiting all these poor countries. But the good news is we can build a better future and let's focus on that. Bingo. Beautiful way to end it. Brother. Go ahead and tell people how they can follow you. Yeah, well, you can follow me on Twitter. My last name is Gladstein, uh, G-L-A-D-S-T-E-I-N. You can follow the work of the Human Rights Foundation at hrf.org. Um, and uh, yeah, I pop I pop in and out of different podcasts from here to there, but I appreciate you having me on today. Oh, man, it was so good. I uh, Rarely do I do this, but I, I feel like I, I need to give some closing remarks. So I know you're, you're, you're out of time, so I'm going to let you go, actually. No, no, I... I'll, I'll listen. Oh, okay, okay. Um, well, I think that... Uh, what I've learned over the past couple of years as I, cause I retired and I've had more time to reflect on things is that um, we don't, I mean, I think we all learn, particularly when we like the Twitter leaks in particular really highlight this fact that we don't have anything close to a free market. Even the, the biggest businesses that exist in this country are all so deeply uh, tied to the governmental system, uh, whether it be through subsidies or government contracts or, uh, you know, quid pro quo type deals where they're uh, allowing our civil rights to be violated at the behest of the government at, for special uh, favors and things of that nature. I feel like this is just a the next level. Like you, you finally get to see like, OK, you got this level that's like super corrupt and absolutely bastardizing capitalism to the point that most people in this country no longer think of capitalism in the most favorable of lights. Um, because I don't think it is capitalism. And then you have this next level that is uh, extraordinarily corrupt and ultimately predatory in nature. And it's, uh, I mean, it's devastating to realize, but I think that, as you said, there is a lot of reason for uh, hope and optimism, given that we now have, you know, new technologies that, that could potentially kind of break us free. I will, I will say that, you know, what I was, <laughs> I was going to put a more negative note. You said that you hope it unwinds slowly um, as a mortgage broker and kind of a, a debt specialist, that is not what happens. Right. <laughs> and, and, you know, well, I realize you're just being optimistic and hopeful and, and I'll, I'll share in that with you. I think that the odds are extraordinarily stacked against this right. ending, uh, over a multi-decade decade period. Right. I think that with, with debt, um, it's often described as a, as a, mound of sand where yeah. like as as the mound of sand grows in size the instability grows and then once there's a a landslide it it's like exponentially uh violent and i think that's where we're at we're dealing with hundreds of trillions of dollars in debt whether it be in the private sector or at the sovereign level and i think that it's going to just be cataclysmic so this is why you know i i lean towards the guy swans of the world when they talk about like you might want to exit the system before yeah. it exits you and yeah. uh uh, just out of curiosity, I'll, I'll end with this. Mm-hmm. What do you think about timelines? I know you said over the next 20 or 30 years, is that kind of your expectation as to how this plays out? Or do you have any idea? Yeah, well, look, I'm noticing that what's interesting and ironic in a way uh, is that the 
per capita usage of Bitcoin is highest in the countries that the IMF and World Bank have screwed over the most. So mm. if you, I have this chart in my article, but if you look at like Nigeria, the Philippines, like all these countries, um, Brazil, like people are opting into a different system uh, and they're doing it at a higher rate than they are in the core countries, let's say. Um, and I think that's they know. <laughs> yeah, I mean, that's, that's interesting. So like on the one hand, regardless of what's happening over here with the economic collapse of the dollar system, like people are flocking into this new uh, framework and, uh, you know, something that is going to be sovereign for them. And I think that's really, really neat. As far as timelines, I mean, I think the next uh, seven years are going to be really intense. I, I, I think the world will look quite different in 2030. Um, I, I think that Bitcoin. No correlation to Agenda 2030. No, 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 totally not. I just, as far as the timeline, I think that, um, I, I, I just think that by the mid 2030s, early mid 2030s, I think like you have a really good chance of, of Bitcoin actually taking over a lot of the functions that the dollar serves today as like this, uh, finance, you know, pristine financial collateral for the world markets and to price energy in and things like that. Um, and I think it can happen faster than people think. Like, uh, you know, 10 years from now is a long time. Um, but uh, I, I, I truly think that Bitcoin will play a big, big part in the world at that point. Uh, I know it, it, it does now for so many people, but I think it'll be much more important then. And I think just the, the, jet generated, the, the debt generating ability of these institutions, whether they be the, the IMF or the World Bank or the US, uh, you know, weakens over time. Like mm -hmm. the, our meaning like we've been able to bail ourselves out for so long. I think that starts to weaken and I think rates start to go up and, you know, you're, you're the debt expert. I, 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 I hope that, you know, you're wrong. Um, but Me in too. my, in my, <laughs> in my bones, I think you're right. I, you know, yeah. I, I think I feel like you're right, but I don't want to be, uh, you know, wishing for the, Oh yeah, no, I, sky to me. fall. Just because um, I'm saying it doesn't mean I'm wishing it. I just but, think but it's I mean, how it plays. But but I mean, sky falling. I mean, sky sky. What people need to realize, who listening, is the sky already fell for so many people. I mean, you look at a country like Ghana. The currency there lost more than sixty percent of its value this year. I mean, imagine the dollar losing sixty percent of its value in a year. Like, this is par for the course in a lot of these countries. Like, you have hyperinflation. You have total bank collapse. You have look at Lebanon. They won't even give you your money back. Like. Like there, people are already living through end of end of times scenarios. It's just maybe you're not living it, but lots of other people around the world are living it. Yeah, I mean, look at look at Ukrainians, look at Burmese, look at Iraqis, look at Iranians. Like th there are hundreds of millions of people living under what you would consider like apocalyptic scenarios, and they're just fucking having to living live it. You know, <laughs> yeah. so like just uh, be a maintain little that perspective. Be a little empathetic, you know, is what I yeah. all I got to say, man. Um, no, but uh, yeah, thanks again, Clint, for having me. It was a lot of fun. Absolutely, man. Uh, that was that was highly highly enlightening, and I, I think will probably be one of the the more discussed episodes I've ever done. So thank you Killer. again for your time. All right, thanks, brother. Take care. You too. Big shout out to everybody that's been with me since Jump Street. Appreciate y'all. Welcome to Liberty Lockdown. Please scan your barcode. Your liberty ain't gone, but yeah, it's on hold. Where did it come from and where did it go? It requires a fight, not tweet from your phone. Don't need a king, get him off the fucking throne. If you're riding with the thought, you've always got a home. The virus is scared of, will come and it'll go. The government knows this, don't get treated like a hoe. Like Nico and Shane, you're probably wondering what's happening. Scared Hollywood left these lyrical feppin'. A typo with Luke might bring the nooses. We all bite the bullet, I'm the king of the gooses. Freckles and Brit, didn't know I could spit. Knew I was a patriot, but now nah, I'm the shit. 
Peter Quinones, invite me on. Which podcaster sends custom songs? Part of the problem? Now I stand with the people. Dave showed the way, but I am unequal. Lions of Liberty, now hear me roar. Beat running up, but I got a bit more. Robbie the Fire, always running his mouth, but I made him a sandwich. Now I'm man of the house. The malice for Nick, but you're welcome to quit. I went over BLM with the fire I spit. Friends against government just caught us fags. Copied the Cairo, put mummies in the bag. Liable opinions get thrown on the ground. Silky's Mouton was the only sound. Getting so hot, must be air July. Screaming in the mic, a rip for 59. Miles to ratio that black guns matter. Now all these lefties got crazy small bladders. None of us wanted war, but we're ready. You know I be bopping and rock steady. Liberty lockdown, please scan your barcode. Your liberty ain't gone, but yeah, it's on hold. Where did it come from and where did it go? It requires a fight, not tweeting from your phone. Don't need a king, get him off the fucking throne. If you're riding with the thought, you've always got a home. The virus is scared of, will come and it'll go. The government knows, just don't get treated like a hoe.